being an entrepreneur and starting companies is also not easy on life. I think you have to, you have to actually rethink your life, like remove constraints of time and money and things like this to really go and pursue some of this stuff. We played a bit of a money ball game, which actually worked really well. We, we hired smart people, everyone, you know, degrees from all the top schools, but they were adjacent to the, the deep learning problem. They knew the statistical underpinnings. They had, you know, the right math backgrounds, but they didn't do that thing particularly. And so that actually worked really well. It's like we could bring together people who were super motivated to learn because they wanted to get into the space and they were this, they had the mental horsepower. Understanding people really well is actually the, the main problem. You have to understand investors. I wish someone had told me this, that my, my job at that time had shifted from becoming a researcher or individual contributor to someone who has to convince investors to invest in us. I have to convince employees to join us. I have to convince people, customers to buy you, buy your product. Your, your job has shifted to chief narrator. You know, you have to understand the, the audience really well. And it's very different from technology. Focus on that. Learn about it. I wish someone had told me that. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. My guest today is Naveen Rao, the co-founder of Mosaic ML and the current head of Generative AI at Databricks. Naveen's journey is unique as it echoes the evolution of AI itself. He's best known for founding and selling two successful companies. The first, Nirvana, an AI-focused chip company was acquired by Intel for $400 million in 2016. The second, Mosaic ML, was acquired by Databricks in June of this year for $1.3 billion. In our conversation, we unpacked the insights and frameworks that led Naveen to make these bets in the first place. We begin by exploring his long history in AI research and startups. From his early days at Qualcomm, his founding of Nirvana, and the genesis of Mosaic ML. We then turn to the complexities of the ever-changing AI landscape and go behind the scenes of Mosaic ML's acquisition by Databricks. We close with Naveen's takes on the most urgent questions in AI, including the recent tumult at OpenAI, the road to AGI, the role of regulation, and where he thinks generative AI will go next. What struck me most is Naveen's remarkable ability to not only anticipate the future, but also actively pave the path towards it. Well, Naveen, thank you so much for joining me today on B2B as CEO. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you very much and welcome to the show. Maybe, Naveen, you can talk through your personal story as a way to get started. Yeah, it's interesting because AI is front and center and Seems to be a lot of kids are probably interested in this topic now, especially with ChatGPT and stuff like that, which is awesome. It's great. I think it's, it draws more focus just from the educational side of things as well. But I've been thinking about artificial intelligence at some level from maybe a fantasy standpoint for a good part of my life at this point. You know, I grew up reading sci-fi and 
I was always fascinated with how we and how biology kind of came together. One of the facts that I learned in undergrad really guided me were two things. One, that the retina, you know, in, in all of our eyes, does what's called a Laplacian tra transform in real time and sends these signals back to the brain. I, I don't know why this blew my mind, but it was just like somehow through this random, you know, culling process of evolution, you came up with something that's like a very useful mathematical transform that through intelligence and math and, you know, and, and basically study, we came up with the same thing, right? That, that, that concept just blew my mind. It's like biology discovered. I actually it. did not know that. So that is very cool. I mean, that you take what is essentially audio, you know, visual image and you got to convert that through the transform to electrical signals. It makes all the sense, right? Yeah, that. you basically send edges, you know, edges of contrast back to the brain. And, you know, it kind of simplifies the amount of data that has to be transferred. And, you know, basically these optimizations of communication bottlenecks and things were, were done by biology. The other, the other simple fact was really that our brains run on about 20 watts of energy. Everything we are runs on 20 watts of energy. And that is also something that's guided me for a long time. And actually, I would even say mosaic part of it was how do we get to AGI, meaning from a system standpoint, we need to build much more efficiency. I, I, an AGI that lives in a data center and can't really go anywhere is maybe interesting. But what's even more interesting is one that has a body and can kind of move around through the world. And in order to do that, we need to think about efficiency front and center. So we actually thought, thought about if I'm six or eight orders of magnitude off in terms of efficiency today, what is it going to take to actually get there? We can chip away about 4x per year. In 20 years, we have almost parity with biology. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that, uh, that, that's been driving me over a long period of time. And so as an undergrad, I was electrical engineering, computer science, but I did a lot of computational biology. I even did research on neuromorphic circuitry back in the 90s. This is some of the work from Carver Mead, where basically you can take a bunch of transistors, put them together to model ion flows in a neuron, and actually get behavior from these neuronal circuits that look like biological neurons. Again, that kind of blew my mind that we could even do that. It's like, wait, there's, a, there's these analogs all around the universe, right? You know, like electrical signals and information, you know, it's this concept that seems to pervade lots of things. And so I did some work there as an undergrad. Then, you know, I came out to, came out to the Valley and worked in a bunch of startups during dot-com bubble. I went to Stanford and dropped out right around that time and, you know, learned how to really build technology. I, and you were designed, a chip design engineer, it sounds like. I, I was, I did, I did chip design. I was always, I was a weird chip designer in that I, I never got too close to the physical side of things. Like I was much more on the architecture side of it. When I, I actually did design hardware, but you write in a language called RTL. Um, yeah, I, I was a cadence. So I know. Okay, you're in cadence. There, you know what RTL is. <laughs> and so when I write, wrote RTL, I would write it like a software guy. Meaning like, if there's a multiply, I would just put star. <laughs> Whereas like real hardware guys go and spell the gates out, you know, all this kind of stuff. So. I, I did hardware design there, but I was much more on the architecture side and then up, up to stack software optimization and then even some application stuff. You know, after 10 years of this and having designed chips at various companies, I mean, I, just, I, helped, I worked on UltraSpark 3 while I was at Sun. It's those ancient memories can come back uh, to people <laughs> from, from, those, from those microprocessors. But after, after 10 years in industry, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm actually very interested in how we can start to build computers that can learn somewhat like the brain. So I said, I should, I should go learn how to, how, how, how brains work, at least yep. this, the art and quit my job and went to get a PhD in 
computational neuroscience, which was a very interesting journey for me. It was, it was a lot of fun. I finished my PhD in three years and nine months because I just loved it. I, I put everything into it and, and I trained, trained monkeys. I did a bunch of machine learning. I built a bunch of software to process neural signals and we built like neural prosthetic stuff. So it was, it was, it was a Are you wide... trouble going back from, you know, having worked for almost for a decade, give or take to a PhD, that must've been a little bit of a system shock. A little bit. I mean, you know, what was interesting is it's all about attitude. My, my whole family thought it was crazy, by the way, because I had one and a half kids when I went back to grad school. And like you had real expenses. I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I had worked for a while, so, you know, I had some savings, but yeah, I, I burned through a lot of savings. I, I think what you'll find with a lot of entrepreneurs is that there's a little bit of crazy in you. You're sort of guided by, I don't know, other concepts. And I, I really didn't care. I'm like, yeah, fine. I, the way I looked at it was, if I don't do this now, I look back on my life and I won't be happy about it. And I wanted to do something that I thought mattered. And could I make a contribution to the field was really what I cared about. And yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun, but it was, it was difficult because having been in industry for a while, you're used to a certain life and all that. So we had to reset things a little bit. But going back to the attitude, I came in with, I, I think, a really good attitude in retrospect where I was like, I don't know anything about neuroscience. I'm here to learn. And, you know, there were undergrad kids who 10 years younger than me who had been doing neuroscience and knew a lot more than me who were in my class. And I was like, okay, that's all right. I, I know some other stuff and maybe that stuff will have a bearing on what I'm learning here. And actually turned out, you know, knowing how to build software really well, knowing how to think about systems and, 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 and analysis of systems actually is very useful in neuroscience. It's really a big system. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of synergies there that came together from my background. And then this, I actually built a lot of software that allowed me to explore dead ends more quickly. Like if anyone's done any real science, science is all about exploring dead ends. And, you know, I was able to do that rapidly because of my software background. So, yeah, I think there was a lot, a lot there. And I, I just thoroughly loved it. I, I put a lot of time in every day. And I think through that process, I got to see how a system that, you know, the same system that has discovered Laplace and tra transforms in retinas, how it came to be, how it, some concepts of how it processes information. And that's what got me thinking about how can we start incorporating this into computer architecture? Wow, so, that's quite the story. I, yeah. Now I'm very curious. How did your wife react to the idea that you're going to quit your job? You have one and a half baby. And we'll come back to the work part, but you're going to move to the other side of the country because you, you moved all the way to the East, back to the East Coast for your PhD. You're living in, you know, student housing. Not quite. <laughs> we had a house <laughs> at that point. I was a grad student. So yeah, I also had been working. So, and my, my wife at the time also worked, but you know, she was pretty supportive. You know, grad school is difficult and I did end up getting divorced, <laughs> not because of those decisions, but because of just other stresses in life. But yeah, it definitely is not easy on life. Being an entrepreneur and starting companies is also not easy on life. Like, I think you have to you have to actually rethink your life, like remove constraints of time and money and things like this to really go and pursue some of this stuff. And uh, I, I don't think a lot of people think about it like that. They're like, oh, I would do this thing if I had a great salary. It's like, well, but you're not. You're not going to have a great salary, right? And so you have to think in the real world, like, what does it really take? Like, I got to like think about my car that I buy. I got to think about where I'm going to put my kids that make it viable. Like all of this stuff in your life has to come together, you know? So you graduate from PhD, now you're back in the real world, and it seems like it, you entered a financial services for a little bit. So talk to us about that and then sort of 
I'm very curious on how you ended up starting Nirvana from there. Yeah, I so actually I, I was a quant and financial services because you know I knew how to do machine learning, and I was actually doing that as as a day job while I was a postdoc. I actually wanted to become go down that academic track and go to a professorship, but you know the stresses of life and getting divorced and all of that make that very very hard. In the sciences, you know, as a postdoc, you make forty thousand dollars a year or something like that. It was it's like you're at the poverty line kind of thing. Exactly. You know? So and as a, very, at IDG, it was probably a little different. Yeah, I got. I mean, as a quant, you get paid pretty well. So I did that as a day job. I would literally go to the lab at night, and I would do other stuff. I, you know, I, I published a paper after that and a few other things. But then, you know, I I saw this this kind of idea of people looking at neuromorphic architectures again, and this is 2012. It was before ImageNet really took off and all of those moments happened. And Qualcomm was actually one of the leading ones. Google already had the beginnings of Google Brain. That was right around the time that that group was coming together. And Qualcomm is actually one of the early companies that invested here. And, you know, I could get essentially an academic research position within Qualcomm and explore a lot of ideas that I had anyway and get paid a reasonable salary. So then I said, okay, well, we're moving back to California and moved to San Diego, where I still am, and took on this position there. And that's when I started to see, like, you know, backpropagation, artificial neural networks were really starting to work convolutional neural nets were really starting to work. And it's like, hang on, guys, this isn't just like a little fad or, or a little toy. This is a new way to describe computation. And so after about a year and a little bit at Qualcomm, that's when I, I decided to go start Nirvana. Actually, I pitched it even internally at Qualcomm. They didn't want to, they didn't want to pursue it, <laughs> which again, that's the kind of stuff that happens. And, and, and obviously I was distraught by this, but then my then soon-to-be co-founder, Amir Kososhahi, he basically said, hey, I have some cousins who are investors. You want to go talk to them? I said, sure, why not? Let's go talk to them. And they said, yeah, I'll invest. I guess we're doing this thing now, right? <laughs> that was an easier fundraise than most. Yeah, it, it was easy because back then a seed round was $600,000. <laughs> so, you know, we raised 600000 from... So Ali Partovi was my co-founder's cousin. And he's the first one to write the check and became an advisor to the company. And, you know, we just jumped in. I, I had a pretty long background in silicon, so I knew how to do that. I knew a lot of people still in the industry and basically started recruiting them. It's like, hey, guys, this is some, something new and cool. No one knew what machine learning was then. No one knew what neural, who cared about, no one cared about neural networks or anything. So really pitching employees here and, you know, people who are going to join the team was about, this is, a, this is a whole game changer here, right, guys? This is something that's completely different. They'd never heard of it. And they had to go do some learning on their own to even understand, is this viable or not? So a lot of people we talked to were like, hey, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't, it's not a networking thing. It's not like a CPU. Like, what is this thing? So anyway, the pitch was a little bit hard and it got easier over time. And I think by 2015, that's when I would say investors knew what deep learning was. 2014, they did not. <laughs> I remember those times. You know, yeah. I, I was like, my earliest investments, they were kind of starting to do stuff was 14, 15. And like my partners thought we were crazy and they're like, what is this shit? And, and by 2017, <laughs> 18, it became very cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the point that the audience here, many of them are aspiring founders. I mean, I'll tell you, like, I've, I've taken the hard path on a lot of these things, meaning I've gone after technologies that haven't yet happened, but I know they're going to happen. There isn't yet a market and employees don't even know about it yet. So how the hell do you build a company, right? Because when you do it, you're actually one of the first ones and you have something completely new. 
And I think you're playing at a harder level, but you're also doing something potentially much more impactful. So, but, like, truly, I mean, to go back to 2014 and do, first of all, doing a new chip startup, like chips were really out of favor in 2014. I mean, they're back in favor in the last four or five years, but in 2014, kudos to Ali and to you and to your co-founder, Amir, for taking the plunge because it was probably as, as bad a time as any to do a chip startup. Chip startup solving a problem that most people didn't think existed, which is, you know, neural network. Tell me more about the first couple of years. What was the most fun part and what was the hardest part? Well, I mean, I think fundraising was super hard. You had to find that coalition of the willing who were like, they got it. And there were some, right? I mean, Steve Jurvetson was the one who led our Series A. Mind you, back then, Series A was $3.3 million. Everything was smaller back then. And, you know, Steve and I, I, I talked to a whole bunch of investors, got a whole bunch of no's because they're like, I don't know. I did, I did a hardware startup in 2005 and it failed. So I'm not doing another one, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. I totally and, see that, yeah. Yeah. And so I talked to Steve and we talked about like alternative numeric representations and, and the advantages and disadvantages of doing matrix math and convolutional operations. I talked about that stuff on the first call with him. I'm like, all right, this guy gets it, right? Like he's super smart. And yeah, he ended up investing in the company. And then, you know, DCVC, Matt Ocko invested in the company in the next year. And we, we had raised, you know, mid twenties, like 24 million, something like that by that point. And so, yeah, I think that first year was very tough to precisely pin down what we're going to build that's differentiated. You know, how we'd go to market was also not clear. Like, are we going to sell hardware? A lot of people were like, don't just sell hardware. That's, that's an awful business. Now everyone's like, no, it's a great business. But back then they were like, no, it's an awful business. We were actually going to do this as almost like a mini version of like TPU and Google Cloud. Like we had our own cloud that we we're going to stand up our own hardware. We started with GPUs and then we, we were building a service around. And that was our go-to-market. So we were trying to figure all this stuff out. And that was actually both stressful, but also super fun. You know, like you're defining a new thing that just never existed before. So I, I love that. Some people don't like that, but I absolutely love having, having no structure and complete, you know, white space to do it. And then, you know, I think 2014, or sorry, 2015, that's when we kind of knew what a product looked like. It really was just execution. Getting great talent was super hard then because that's when Google brains sort of started turning up the, turning up the juice. And it was basically impossible to hire anyone who had any grad school experience in deep learning or neural networks. And so that was very hard. We played a bit of a money ball game, which actually worked really well. We, we hired smart people, everyone, you know, degrees from all the top schools, but they were adjacent to the, the deep learning problem. They knew the statistical underpinnings. They had, you know, the right math backgrounds, but they didn't do that thing particularly. And so that actually worked really well. It's like we could bring together people who were super motivated to learn because they wanted to get into the space and they were this, they had the mental horsepower. To do. And at the same time, they weren't on the pick list for Google, you know, Google. So you got it. Exactly. That's, that's very cool. That's very cool. That's, that's, that's a fascinating insight, I think, for entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, hiring, getting the right team, like I, I, I never can stress this enough to people. Like I invest and advise in early stage startups. And, you know, if you have any doubts about someone in your first 10, don't hire them. Like it's so important. I, it, it's always painful to say no to somebody that looks like they're qualified, but it's like the cost is so high to getting it wrong. You know? Well said. Okay, so you, you're, you're off to the ground, you raise some money, you have some clarity on product, fig, you figured out, so at least you have a hypothesis and business model. And then what happens? I mean, you sold relatively early in the, in, in the journey. 
Can, yeah, can we did. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, we we had the, the essentially a two dimensional processor, like a matrix processor, well before GPUs were there. And actually, I would argue that we pushed Nvidia to execute more quickly once we got acquired by Intel. In retrospect, I think it was we shouldn't have sold for a lot of reasons, but you know, it is what it is. We we were the first ones, and we had a really distinct advantage. I mean, there it's rare when you're like, I'm about to have the chip that actually has a 10x advantage. <laughs> I mean. I don't know how, I, I think back, I'm like, damn it, we, we actually had that situation. I gave it away, <laughs> you know? You know, you're spot on, but it's, it's a hard decision at the time. I mean, you're a first time founder. Yeah. There's, there, it was probably a pretty good offer, but in yeah, hindsight, I mean, in hindsight, you could have been NVIDIA 2.0. Yeah, really. And it, you know, it was $400 million offer. We were two and a half years in, this was 2016. I had quit my job in 2007 to go back to grad school. So this was a overnight success, nearly 10 years in the making at this point. And so financial stress is real, right? It's a real thing that entrepreneurs feel. And it's like, I had kids, I had to put my kids through college, right? And I basically burned all my savings going to grad school. I look, you know, as you said, 400 million at that stage for you is, you know, is a very meaningful number. Like you're looking at that and saying, hey, there's all this risk ahead of me. Yeah. And, and there's, you know my share of $400 million tomorrow. So. That's right. And I thought, you know, I could come into Intel and continue to execute that vision. And that was really the goal. You know, it's just, maybe it was just naive to think that because it's just very hard to get things done in, in large organizations. And I think that's what I found once that happened. We, we got a lot done, actually. And we did change the entire ship of Intel. I started a whole new division inside of Intel it, and grew that division, ran it for three years. So I think, I learned a lot just from the experience of it, but we, we did have an opportunity that we, I think, gave away because everything slowed down once we became part of a bigger company. So anyway, you've now been at Intel a couple of years. Hopefully you're in, you're vested. And yeah. More than a couple of years, close to four years, I think, from what I remember. How would you describe what Mosaic ML does? Yeah, Mosaic ML is a managed service for pre-training, fine-tuning, and serving large-scale neural networks. LLMs, diffusion models, that kind of a thing. So we basically package it up, make it very easy, remove all the complexity of orchestrating a thousand GPUs, making them efficient, and then actually running these large-scale training jobs. It's just, we, we reduce the complexity, the cost, and, and, and just make it accessible to many more people. I want to come back to the story, which was you started off with this insight that you could improve the compute efficiency 10x. And, and the thesis I'm assuming at the time was you could do it for any model which is why you ended up with open source. Mo- so it's not, the innovation was not in the model, but in the execute, in the, you know, in the training and inference of the, using that model. Is that a well, fair? It's in the model itself, actually. So it, it cuts across the stack. It's obviously software engineering matters, having good, fast, optimized implementations so that you have to have that. But you, we actually did change the model itself. And in fact, we, we came up with a classification of different sorts of speed up methods we call them. So some were math preserving and some were math changing. So math preserving, you know, a standard software optimization would be one of those. There's some that are quasi math preserving, which are like precision, things that use lower precision. Then there's things that that actually alter the math where we change regularization schemes between layers. We, We do different forms of culling of data sometimes, you know, like selective backpropagation, this kind of thing. So there, there are things where we change the outcome, but we get to the converged network faster. 
So it was baked into the models to some degree. Got it. And is that still true today? It is. Yeah, we see all the time. So you are not, so in your approach, you're not sort of taking an existing open source model, let's say Llama or something else and saying, we'll just make that faster. No, I mean, we, we, we all work in a community, right? I mean, Llama is not that different from every other thing. They're all the same. It, it's really what, what Facebook did was they applied the compute to the back end and then did a lot of the RLHF and this kind of stuff to the, to the model. But the model definitions themselves, nothing terribly groundbreaking there. So we actually have taken standard transformers and, and applied many of these efficiency methods. We, we do a lot of rigorous testing to make sure we have the most efficient stack. And uh, as far as I know, we do have the most efficient stack right now in terms of getting to a certain size model on a certain number of tokens, we will do it cheaper than anyone else. Coming back to sort of the story of the company. So you started the company in 2021. You have this big vision. You know, by now, you know, neural nets and sort of, you know, our deep learning is, is mainstream, at least mainstream in Silicon Valley. So talk to us about the early journey of the story and what drove you to sort of, you know, get acquired by Datamic. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because there's some analogs here too. I mean, like deep learning was unheard of at the beginning of Nirvana. LLMs were kind of unheard of by most of the industry at that point, 2021. It's pre-chat GPT, right? <laughs> After chat GPT, everybody knew what an LLM was. Everybody became, everyone became an expert at them, right? <laughs> I think we, we had to find product market fit, right? So we started, had to figure out, okay, what are the workloads that people are going to care about? making efficient. And so we explored a lot of the space. We did a lot of computer vision work. We started looking at NLP. We looked at a lot of different things. And those early days are really spent around research to make our methods somewhat generalizable. We built an open source framework called Composer, which allowed us to compose these different methods together. In fact, the name Mosaic comes from this. It's like, it's a mosaic of different parts. That's what makes the whole. Very cool. Yeah, so that's what was the name than just a URL. That's right. Yeah, actually, the URL was hard hard because Mosaic is a generic word, so we had to put the ML on it <laughs> to make it you know searchable. It was too hard just to have Mosaic. In fact, there's a lot of already overloading on Mosaic right now. Like if you search Mosaic AI, there's some other companies. So it's and in some ways it's not a good thing, but it, it it was a very apropos word, and we wanted to use it. So. Yeah, we, we basically built this open source framework. We released it in October of 2021. So just a few months after we started and actually started to get some open source traction at that point, mostly in the research world, right? Academics, maybe some folks at big companies who were, who were building neural networks. Th this was, this was who we were going after first because one, that's what we knew. And, you know, the most technical users are the ones that are going to care about this stuff first. But we had the thesis that it was going to become more mainstream. And yeah, we, we started building on top of that. We actually started building a stack to enable orchestration in the cloud to make it much easier to pull together these GPUs, detect failures, all that kind of stuff. We started training some large-scale neural networks, LLMs, in the beginning of 2022, I believe. Yeah, we started doing that with Stanford. CRFM group, the Center for Research on Foundational Models. We, we actually built a neural network on all of PubMed from 2022 back to 1970. We started the underpinnings of the, of the product then. And then we started saying, well, that was actually the first external 
you know, entity we onboarded into onto our stuff. And so that became, became the early pieces of the product. Now, what's interesting is, you know, there's all these product books out there. There's 500 of them. They all kind of say the same thing. You know, it's, it's, they say it in different ways. Now there are different frameworks for products and all this stuff. But a lot of them talk about user interviews and, you know, gathering feedback from the market. And I think that concept is absolutely spot on. I think a lot of people take it a little bit too literally in my mind, where they want to interview a whole bunch of people and have that define your product. I think when you interview people, we, we did this and you get a sense of what are the pain points. You get some mapping of the problem space. But you don't get solution. They don't know what they need. They don't know what the solution space looks like. So exactly. So yeah, I totally. Well, VCs have this problem in diligence all the time. You keep trying to figure out if there's a budget for this, or do people need this product? And people don't know what they need because they know what problem they have. Yeah. They don't know how to solve the problem in most cases. They just and, and, and their customers and and everybody are much more. They can start thinking about something when it's when it's tangible. Like if you have a product, say, hey, does this solve your problem? And they can say yes or no, right? So I think that it's always, it's a hard problem. And this is what I meant by, I, I, I've tended to start companies that are very hard to start. And from, from a certain point of view, because it's like, we're so far ahead of the market that people don't know what this product is. It's not an established category. So you're establishing a new category and solving a new problem. And I mean, in your case, in many situations, even the problem itself was, almost non-existent when you started the company. Yeah, you or were, scaled you were solving out. a problem that you anticipated people would have. Correct. It's funny because to me, it's obvious they're going to have this problem, <laughs> right? Because you know where the world's going. I don't know. For me, it's, that part has been pretty easy. I know where the world's going. Like, I can tell you in two years, like, that's happening. You know? And I mean, I just need to hang out with you more often. That will solve all my venture problems. <laughs> you can tell me every week where you think the world is going. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think you can find that startup. I mean, I think I've been pretty good at calling those things. And, you know, that yeah, you absolutely have. You just have to be right a few times, you know, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. But w what that really means is that it becomes very hard to get information about what product you're defining. It. You're like, as the problem space itself is evolving, you're defining the solution. But there's a lot of value to doing that because you can actually change the way people think about that problem and think about solutions like you are you're guiding them which I always find very both fascinating and rewarding. It's like, hey, all of a sudden now you've realized this thing. And by the way, we've been thinking about it. We have something for you. So that, that's really fun. It's a million ways to build a company, right? You can build a company with wonderful product insights on established problems. I, I just like to look at new stuff and, and go where the world is headed. So anyway, I think that's what we were doing a lot of back then was understanding what the problem space was. And by 2022, we kind of understood that that we're going to have this managed service. We're going to reduce complexity. We're going to get these efficiency methods into scale out computation. And we onboarded our first customer in, uh, I think, July, or we closed a deal with our first customer in July of 2022. And we just kept learning from them. And, you know, as the first one. And this is a customer that said, hey, I want, I want your LLM model and I want a custom LLM for some problem that they were looking to solve. Yeah. And they were, yeah. they were fine-tuning, you know, because you had a base LLM. No, they were building it. They were building it from oh, scratch. They were doing it from scratch. So it was a custom LLM for a specific customer. Correct. Yeah. And they were going to use our tools. We we sold them on the efficiency and the orchestration of it, as well as the expertise that we can help with. And you know, we got going. The first customer was always very painful, right? Onboarding them took three days. You know, it was like we had so many problems, things broke. 
<laughs> constantly. It's just what happens, right? And then, you know, our team, like, I, I, I mean, if any of them hear this, I, I want to thank all of them. Is leaned in and and really made it work. You know, there were people staying up all night with the customer trying to make this stuff work. And so through that, it became a little bit better. We onboarded the second customer and the third customer. Then by the end of, so then ChatGPT happened right around this time. Well, it changed. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, December of last year was like, holy shit, we can't keep up. Like everybody wants this thing. And so then from January of 23 through like, you know, May or so, like we, we went from nearly zero. We had maybe a little bit less than a million dollars ARR to, you know, 20 plus in just a few months. Like it just exploded and the products got better and better and better. We were up to like 40 or 50 customers. It was a lot of fun and we were hanging on for dear life, but it was a lot of fun. Well, I think at the beginning of April, we released MPT7B, which was the state of the art 7 billion parameter model at that point. It had like, I don't know, eight, 9 million downloads or something like that, some ridiculous number. And so we showed the world that you can make small models that are very high quality and you can do it on our platform. And we laid out everything, all the precise costs. You know, that was about $200,000 to train. Everyone was like, whoa, that's it? It's cheap. Prior to that, we had laid out that GPT-3 costs about $450,000 to train, not $10 million. And since then, we've continually dr driven these costs down through more and more innovation. So I think that GPT-3 number is probably closer to like $100,000 now. Yeah. I mean, it's the, uh, the value of these large models is, is obvious when you play with them, right? And I think the world just didn't know about it yet. But it was clear to me that they're going to solve some really important problems. I mean, things like BERT were already in massive production in, in the Googles of the world. So I think a, a very simple-minded template is look at what the big tech companies do. And if those techniques can be productionized for the rest of enterprise, that's an opportunity, right? BERT was in, was in production in Google search already at that I mean, one of my portfolio companies, Eightfold, sort of started implementing BERT in 2018. Yeah. And it, of course, it was very early and we ended up, you know, I think it was very painful. But by 2021, I mean, it was full scale. It was running a pretty sizable business. We had it up and running with hundreds of customers. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think it was super esoteric even at that time, but it wasn't, it wasn't available in the enterprise yet. And then LLMs were so much harder to build because of the complexities associated with them and the costs that we wanted to, we basically said, if we can bring this to enterprise, we'll have an enormous business, right? And so that started to prove out and then, you know, enter the scene Databricks, right? <laughs> just, just a few months ago now, but, you know, I, we'd known data about Databricks, obviously as a company for a while. And in fact, we even pitched that we would, we, we could become like a new, a, the next Databricks because we were going after a very similar, if not identical customer. It was, it was the enterprise CIO, the data science teams, these folks, right? That's who we were, that became our archetype of, of customer. And so Databricks had built a huge business on this. And we actually said that in our investor pitches, this is, this is our go-to-market motion. We're, we're just gonna lift what Databricks did. In fact, basically thought that we could get to that billion dollar revenue number on our own. It takes years to get there because you have to build the go-to-market and all of that. But we said, let's, let's do it. And so when I, when I met Ali for the first time in April of this year, I knew Databricks, of course, and I knew what they had, had been able to accomplish. And what was interesting about them is that they, they did it with all the competition of the clouds. 
kind of they they were able to rise above it and actually still build this business. And I was like, that's pretty awesome. So I I wanted to talk to him. I want to understand like you know what are some of the decisions you made that got you there. What's funny is we've now talked about this as a customer story with Replit. Their ghostwriter models are built on Mosaic, and so they were one of our they were one of our sort of more public customers. They they wrote a big blog about it, and they actually showed in their blog, and this is before the acquisition, Databricks for data processing and then Mosaic for training. And we we kind of saw that as like that's a, that's a very nice canonical stack to do this stuff, right? You do the ingest, the organization, the ETL on Databricks, then you pipe it over to Mosaic, train the models, and then serve the models on Mosaic. Wonderful. And what what I found out behind the scenes, and I actually didn't know this, was we won that deal from Databricks, Mosaic. And so, you know, Ali being the competitive guy, he is like, who the hell are these guys, right? <laughs> they beat me on a deal, some stupid startup, right? And so he started looking into it. And so actually, you know, in retrospect, I found out that, you know, he, he actually wanted to talk because he wanted to understand a bit more about us. He was like, exactly. He's very competitive. Totally. Yeah. And I had a great exchange with him. You know, I think we got exchange numbers and we had text back and forth about stuff. You know, I. I was asking him about like government businesses and should we put energy into that with, you know, going after the, you know, cause we were in Qtel was an investor. So should we put energy into this? And we talked a little bit about these things. And then, you know, he, he texted me on a weekend and said, Hey, I, I, I we got to talk. And I was like, you know, I'm busy. We'll talk on Monday <laughs> kind of a thing. And that's when I was like, I think he, he's getting ready to, to pop the question here. And so I actually had an inkling of this already. I could, I got a sense of it. It's not my first rodeo. So I, I circled up with Hanlon and Jonathan and, you know, we, we formed an opinion here and we, we thought there's a lot of advantages, but we have to see what the potential disadvantages are. And I had met Ali, but Hanlon and others had not met the rest of the team. And we actually got the founding team of Databricks together with Mosaic and we had, we had dinner and, you know, it was just really interesting because everybody just got along so well. And it was like, we're kind of a set of people that knew each other forever. It's what it felt like, you know? And I was like, I know things aren't going to be perfect if we do work together, but like, I can trust these guys that I'm going to like, we're going to figure it out together, you know? Yeah. And in a way that probably felt very different from hanging out with the folks at Intel. Yeah, they're, these were founders, right? These were, these were people who did their PhDs just a few years prior. And just like us, right? Hanlon has a PhD. We're, we're all, we were cut from a similar cloth in that way. We care about research. And this is not like a, the kind of entrepreneur story where it's like, I'm a hustler, hustler, hustler. It's like, no, no, these are very academic-minded people who then had to learn how to become that hustler, right? To be, build a company. And so we all went through that journey. And so I think there's just a lot of commonality between us and as teams. And so, like I said, they just felt like, felt like my people, you know, we can make this work. When Ali talked about this, I said, you know what? I'm not going to say no. I think this could be fantastic. We could actually go and own this product surface. We could go own this enterprise gen AI thing, but it's going to come down to economics. That's really, that's really it. That was the first conversation I had with them. And we came, we negotiated over the course of about two weeks. That was it. And then he said, go, I want to get this. I want to get the announcement done, get the definitive agreement signed before data and AI summit, which was about a month from that point. And so we, this is from the first conversation to the close of the deal was 62 days. Insanely fast. You know? But that's Ali for you. So obviously there was the, there was the massive opportunity ahead of you and the, and the opportunity to leverage sort of the, in a sense, the go-to-market infrastructure that Databricks had built. 
there was the opportunity where one plus one was clearly equal to three. Because, you know, they, they really owned data processing. You know, they had sort of every one of your customers was a customer of theirs and the two things together would work better. There was the chemistry between the founding team. So all of those things make sense. Was there anything else in the market around you, the sort of, you know, the strategic dimension that played into this decision? For example, the fact that OpenAI was really pushing a proprietary model architecture as against your approach, which was, you know, less obvious, even if you go back six months. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you have to believe in certain ideals. And I believe in this ideal of decentralization. I, I don't think central decision making is the right way, especially when you're talking about like people talking about existential risk and all of that. It's like, yeah, guys, don't put it all in one place. right? <laughs> Let's distribute this stuff. Right. To me, that looks kind of obvious. But yeah, you know, I think I look at it like this is going to be a hard fought battle. We're, I, I'm coming on the battlefield and, you know, I got some expert snipers. I need some tanks. Right. That's kind of the way I was thinking about it. And I'm like, it's just a lot of risk that for us to go at it alone. Yeah, I can raise the money. I, I was pretty confident of that, especially at that point we, with all the traction we had. I wasn't worried about raising money, but it was more about like, what do I need to succeed? And, you know, having gone through the whole Intel thing, like I, I really didn't want to get acquired by a big company. Like really didn't. I had a very, very strong aversion to it because, you know, Intel was very challenging for me in a lot of ways. Personally and professionally, it was just, it was not, it was fun. Sometimes I learned a lot, but it also was very, very frustrating. So and I, and you saw your baby wither away. I did. Yeah. And it was just one of the stupidest corporate decisions I've ever seen. Intel could have been the leader in AI chips if they'd just gotten out of their own freaking way. I'm happy to say that publicly. It's, it was really some of the worst decision making I've ever seen from a company. And it was just, it was done in an extremely backstabbing manner. So <laughs> anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that I th I think there's there's a book on missed opportunities by Intel, and this is pretty high up there. This is another one. Yet another one. And you know, I was hoping it would be different. It felt like it was gonna be different for a while, but it wasn't at the end of the day. But uh well, anyway. strategically you looked at the opportunity, you felt like, hey, having a partner made sense, given that there was becoming sort of a, a more philosophical battle of, you know proprietary APIs versus a more open source model. And clearly you were in one camp as against open AI. And you wanted to have, as I, I love the way you put it, you had snipers, but you needed some tanks. You, you needed to be part of a larger, larger. And, and at the same time, you didn't want to be part of, you know, in, in, an Intel-like Intel tank that moved at one millimeter an hour. That's right. Because moving fast is actually extremely important, right? Even still, this, this field is moving very quick. You got to ship products. You got to ask questions later sometimes, you know, and you can't, you can't be too slow and you need people who are really smart at decision-making. You know, we were approached by several companies already at that time. I was going to say, who else did you consider? Did anyone else come close? How did you think about that decision? Because most uh, founders go through this decision. So, you know, yeah, sharing. I'm not sure I want to share all the names of the companies, but they're the ones, you know, you know, they're the ones who are big in this gen AI space now, hardware, software, clouds, all of that kind of stuff. Right. They all approach. And, you know, the, 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 it could have been good. I, I think there's ways to make that good. But I just foresaw a lot of pain again. And this I'm like, you know like what? A natural fit. This, this was like a match made in heaven. Yeah. I was just, I said, look, I don't want to work at those companies. It's fine. Like if I fail, it's fine. I'd rather have failed trying on our own than go and work at one of these companies. So I just screw it. 
But then when talking with Allie, this is the one that was different. And in fact, it may have been the only option in some ways. I mean, there's not many companies that had the same go-to-market that we need, that had the right founding team, that had the, you know, the data, data tools that were such a, a clear complement to what we were building. Like there were a lot of pieces that came together that made sense. And so, yep. And that could be the thing because you also don't want to spend three years integrating these two things. And by then the market has moved on, you know, that's right. I mean, we're shipping, we shipped integrations already, you know, I mean, yeah, there's some frustration sometimes with bigger organizations, but like the Databricks organization is still very nimble and has very, very smart people in it. And things can move, things move fast. So that's what I wanted. And, you know, that's what we're getting. And actually, you know, we have access to 10,000 customers, <laughs> enterprise customers, all the big enterprises now we are, we're going after and, and closing deals with. So. Yeah, I think it's the thesis is proving out. In fact, my workload has gone up because of so many customer meetings. I'm flying all over the place for this stuff, but it's all it's all good though. This is, this is good stress to have, you know. So That's I think great. the thesis is proven out. Well, as as a Databrick shareholder, I'm very grateful that you made the choice, and you know, I think it's it is it is going to be a remarkable combination. So congratulations! It it's an exciting year ahead for the company. You know, we growing very fast at a at a big scale, right? I mean, I think we just talked about. Externally, we're more than one and a half billion revenue. Growing at the scales we're talking about at that revenue is is not easy, but it just shows the product was actually is is right for the market right now. You know, absolutely. So, Navid, you know, I think zooming out of sort of Databricks and Mosaic ML specifically, I, I'm going to start asking a bunch of questions around sort of the industry in particular. I wanted to, to the extent you feel comfortable, probe around this whole AGI thing. Personally, I think it's a little overdone. But I think it's worth the conversation. Maybe talk a little bit about what's going on. What are the implications of what's happened at OpenAI? Because even yeah. though it just feels like a full circle, I do think you know there's some lessons for the industry. Well, let's start with the OpenAI drama that Please. happened recently. I mean, I think th th there was a lot of quote-unquote innovation on the structure of the company, and and you know maybe some of it had good intent, but it, it just became too complicated and. It just kind of goes to show these these mechanisms that we have, corporate mechanisms even, work for a reason, right? They contemplate lots of different failure modes and things like this of, of leadership and governance. And what it really showed is that corporate governance matters. You, you, you need people to understand where and when risks occur and when to take action. I, I think there was an action taken prematurely. That's That was my view here. Maybe, you know, maybe there was a reason to sound alarm or, or you know, the founder has has their reasons somebody you know people like Ilya Suskov are very smart he had reasons to sound an alarm that needs to be taken in context and actions need to be thoughtful and i think what this showed was that you have the single point of failure on governance and it created lots of problems i think it's probably good for industry to be completely honest with you because it it showed that this weird corporate structure that was invented to solve some kind of problem is is something they've used as a lever during hiring. They've created a new unit, like this profit unit, that I don't actually think a lot of employees even understand. It's being touted as like, oh, it's going to be worth this much, but you really don't know. There's actually weird inherent risks in this. Like we understand options and RSUs, but we don't understand PPUs very well. So really, I think, I don't know. I, I don't think it was intentional, but it feels like it duped some of the folks at the company. And maybe what's happened now is that it's shined a light on it. And said, like, okay, wait, what is this really worth? Is it really going to be the, the thing that I thought it was that I made decisions on? 
So I think that's good. Good for the industry is that let's let's standardize comp a little bit here. Also, you know, you're an investor. You look at DCFs, right? I mean, you got to look at size of market before you look at investments. And and I think the way things were pitched for the nonprofit was like we're going after AGI. And when I solve AGI, then it's an in infinite return. That was kind of a presupposition. I'm like, okay, guys, that that's just it's kind of crazy set of concepts. I mean. First off, I don't know, know what solving AGI is. And there are several def, def, definitions there that floated around. And then really looking at return of this is not super clear. So I think if you structure a nonprofit that way, fine, you can get people to donate to it. But when you make a for-profit entity, you got to look at like, I put investment in for the for return on a time basis. And I think now the company needs to play by those rules a little bit more. And that will change the industry a bit. And I think, look, I think, you know, what, what was a relatively small entity till just a few years ago, perhaps some very unusual structure didn't really matter. And, you know, given the role that it plays today, given the role OpenAI plays, it's important, actually, from a societal standpoint, more than regulation in my mind, I think having transparency around motivations, transparency around governance, for all of the entities playing in the ecosystem is important. And because that's where self-regulation comes from. I mean, that's the inherent, you know, that's the, that's the basis for capitalism. And I think the lack of transparency on governance and motivations, I think, was an issue. And, and hopefully this will be a forcing function to address some of those issues. But step away from the OpenAI specific issues, like from an industry standpoint, look, we had a, we had a big shock in the system. The shock of the system, I think, exposed some of the governance challenges. It exposed the challenges of being over-reliant on any one participant. I know every single company in my portfolio was furiously, you know, calling around to say, hey, how do we get a plan B? So when you look it's forward, what do you think is going to change? You kind of upset the apple cart. The stability that was being created by a big entity is actually wasn't so stable because of this governance. So we highlighted that. I think the idea that we're going to, that we've already created intelligence is the one that is a bit of a problem for me. I think. Everyone was shocked when they first saw ChatGPT. When I say everyone, I mean sort of the lay audience. Us in the industry, not shocked. It wasn't a big deal. We've seen these things. But it was the first time that I think the world was really exposed to something that communicated sort of like a human. So they are, they, everyone then, they jump in their minds to this conclusion of this thing's conscious. It's this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, actually, guys, hang on, hang on. This is the autoregressive LLM. Autoregressive models have certain properties and one of them is that you know when you when you predict from the next token and you take the past and you predict the next token and you keep adding that together you end up with these kind of divergent errors and you see that when you when you produce very long passages you, you see things that kind of goes off the rails so that's actually not intelligence in my mind we haven't solved agi and these alignment things are kind of in my view not it's not the solution it's a piece of the solution, we need feedback loops. What we really need are networks that can learn, you know, mental models of, of different aspects of the world, make predictions on that mental model, perform an action, gather feedback from that, you know, observe the, the, the feedback, incorporate that feedback and learn. That's how you kind of stay aligned with the world. It has to be a continual thing, not a one-time thing during training. So I, I think we're pretty far away in my mind still from an, a true a true intelligence. People jump the gun a lot and now people are jumping to, you know, end of the world and all of this. And it's, it's, it's way too early 
to be talking about these things. I want to build on that because, you know, I, as I was thinking about this, this conversation, I was sort of, I saw comments by, you know, Jensen saying we're three years away. I saw someone else talk about being five years away. I don't know if we're a decade, two or three decades away. Like if you, if you really think about AGI as having human level intelligence, I think what people miss is the models today are incredible compared to what we had three, four years ago. But relative to a human being who can, who can correct the feedback loops that human beings go through, the relative to the human ability to actually decide what to do. It's not just about doing the task. It's human beings actually make decisions on what tasks make sense. These models are light years away from those decisions. If you a very narrow task and execute it, and there's lots to be done for, to improve the execution as you just laid out, because the more complex the task becomes, the more steps in the task you see, the models go haywire. But even when you solve those problems, you still have to get the models to define, you know, intelligence is about defining what tasks to be done. And, and we will get there hopefully at some point, but I, I don't know if it's 10 or 20 or 30 years away. Well, the whole AI world has been a series of demonstrations that didn't scale. We've seen this happen over and over again. So, you know, let's walk back to the mid 90s. This is when the support vector machine came out that effectively killed neural network research back in, in 1995. Vapnik et al. published this paper and wonderful tool. I used it a lot. You know, one thing it did really well was at that time we had this data regime where we had maybe thousands or maybe a hundred thousand examples of something by today's standards, very, very small, but you could get like fantastic results with, with these models. And people were like, oh my God, we've solved everything, right? This is the way that the brain works. Everybody said this. Then it kind of got tapped out. It didn't scale. It got to a point where, well, actually when I start throwing millions or billions of examples, it doesn't learn anymore. That's actually when neural networks started to take off because like, actually they keep going. And so I think we're kind of a little bit at that point now. We have demonstrated some pieces that actually shows a lot of promise. Even this whole Q learning, you know, thing that, that, that came up. Q learning has traditionally not scaled to high dimensional spaces very well. Reinforcement learning breaks down when you get to those places. Will we solve it? Probably, but we got to figure out how to make it work stably at those scales. The biology has done this. I mean, you know, our brains didn't evolve in a day. It took, you know, the better part of, 4 billion years to do this. And there's a lot of steps along the way of making a stable system. And not to say it's going to take 4 billion years, but I, I kind of agree with you that we're probably more like decades away rather than years. And I, I just don't understand how somebody like Jensen or Elon can say it's three years. Like you've seen the failures over the last several years. We're not three years away. In my mind, that's zero probability we get to AGI. I could say, start saying maybe we're at a 50 or 30% chance in 10 years. Maybe by 30 years, we were in the 90% chance, you know, range. So I think there, it, it's still in my mind decades before we have systems that are truly kind of autonomous, can make decisions, rove around the world, you know, that work, that, that seem like an autonomous agent. And I think that's, so what, I, what I'm afraid of right now is like, there was a lot of rhetoric around regulation. Some of that is slowed, which is good, but you know, I, everyone's like, well, if it's going to happen, eventually we should regulate it. I said, well, yeah, that's fine, but we need to understand the problem. In my mind, it's like, it's like, imagine being in 1850 and I'm going to talk about, you know, making rules of the road for cars. You don't even know what an accident looks like yet. You don't know what liability looks like yet. We don't understand how you can make rules and laws before you understand the problem. And so, and before you have some early signs of a problem, 
Like, how can you define rules of the road? We've never seen a car. You've never had an accident. You don't know how fast they'll go. I think we are, we're many years away from that situation. And I think all of the, you know, I, I think what's going on is there's this interesting dynamic where on one hand, many of the folks within the AI community actually have a vested interest in some regulation and have a vested interest in hyping up the, the, the opportunity because they're, they're trying to make the case that my stock or my whatever asset I have should be worth 10 times more than it is worth today in the next three years. Or, hey, justify why it should be worth whatever it's worth today. So I think there's a set of vested interests. And on the other hand, you have regulators who always have a vested interest in regulating. Like creating regulation is incredibly valuable for regulators. That's what they get paid to do. Well, and I... I, I mean, I think on the regulator side, like, so I, I've been involved in a lot of this. I was at the UK AI Safety Summit, and I actually wrote a thread on Twitter about this. So you can look at my Twitter handle and, and check it out, uh, Naveen G. Rao. But what I found there was, I, I think the regulators are just trying to get their heads around it. And they're like, look, it's their job to keep the public safe. It is. And, and, I, and I think when they hear, you know, the Sam Altman's of the world and others talk about this as if something is happening tomorrow, they're trying to take it seriously, which is, it's not their fault. They, they're trying to do the right thing. And, and I think that's what's happened is that like a lot of smart people have come out and, and I think some of them are sincere. Some of these smart people are really sincere. They believe there is some kind of a risk here. I don't agree with that, but they, they feel this sincerely. I think there's a lot of people that are insincere. And, and actually, Mark Andreessen wrote a nice essay. He called them, what were they, Baptists and, and bootleggers, I think. Baptists and bootleggers. It was a really nice, I, I liked his analogy. Basically, the Baptists are the, are the true believers, right? They're the ones who are like, no, no, I sincerely believe this. Then there's the bootleggers who are basically acting like they're a Baptist, but they're actually just trying to like. They're opportunists. They're opportunists, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, Nivina, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes because I know we're going to run against the clock for you. So less about being comprehensive and just sort of snappy answers. The first if you could offer one piece of advice to aspiring founders, what would that be? Know your problem space really well. That's sort of the supply side of technology. Know how, the pro how you can build what you want to build and understand the customer and problem side really well. Once you understand those two things, everything in between is execution. If you look back to before you started Nirvana, what is one thing you wish you had known before your first startup that now seems so obvious to you? I think. Understanding people really well is actually the, the main problem. You have to understand investors. I wish someone had told me this, that my, my job at that time had shifted from becoming a researcher or individual contributor to someone who has to convince investors to invest in us. I have to convince employees to join us. I have to convince people, customers to buy you, buy your product. Your, your job has shifted to chief narrator. You know, you have to understand the, the audience really well. And it's very different from technology. Focus on that. Learn about it. I wish someone had told me that. You know, my version of that statement is I tell people, as a founder, CEO, you're a sales rep with a fancy business card. Yeah. And you're selling all day, whether it's to investors, you know, customers for sure, but also employees and every other stakeholder. And, and it's a shift. It, it truly is a shift, as you rightly said. Next one, you know, as, as you look out into the future and you look out the ecosystem, what do you think over the next 12 months 
people are going to look back and say, this was obvious. So, you know, what, what do you think is the next chat GPD moment for the AI ecosystem? I think places where we can start to constrain LLMs and actually, you know, have predictable sort of controlled behavior is the thing that will be, that will be the next big unlock. You know, if I have things that I can interact with data very naturally and reliably, like when I ask it something, I know that I'm going to get the answer that's based in the data. That's going to be a huge unlock for all enterprise. It'll change the way we can program. It'll change the way we write queries to databases. It'll change the technology landscape at a very deep level. Not yet solved. Absolutely. What are you most excited about today? I'm, ex I'm excited about like all the new experiences we're going to see across the board. So one of the things that I've cared about a lot, because my whole family are MDs, like medical doctors, has been healthcare. I think healthcare is something that is core to us as a species. It's, you know, it, it hits us personally, it hits our families, and the cost just keeps going up. And frankly, it's because the system doesn't actually build enough technology. I think AI is one thing that can actually start to change that and bring those costs down. We can start to get expertise baked into AI models that more people can get access to. And that's actually one of the most exciting areas for me. I, I mean, I have a bias. If I take on a customer that's doing something in this area, I'm going to lean in more. I just want to see it happen. No, I, I agree. I, I think people talk about all the, all the enterprise use cases and we're both, you know, we're excited about them. I fund a lot of enterprise companies that are doing enterprise use cases, but healthcare and education will completely get reimagined over the next decade because of AI. And, and I think we will look back and, and, and wonder how we ever lived in a world with sort of healthcare the way, and, and, and education the way it is today. I mean, both of them have seen very little innovation at the macro level in terms of the way service is delivered. Totally. I, I mean, I took my, my son to the doctor, you know, when he, you know, when he gets, a, gets a cold, I wait in the doctor's office exactly like I did when I was a kid, you know, 30 years apart. I have exactly the same experience. What other thing is like that? Your car is different. Your bank is different. Everything is different. You buy online. You don't go to the store. Like all of those things are different, but the doctor is still the same. Right? This has been great. We have so much material. We could probably do two episodes of the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. This was fabulous. All right. Thank you. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, Building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.